with the economy teetering on the edge of recession. Will debt be finally what sends it over the edge? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. We've been hearing for some years now about the danger of debt building up in the economy, personal, corporate, and governmental. One of those loudly sounding the alarm has been Jerry Flum, CEO of Credit Risk Monitor. He's joined us on the podcast before to talk about how rising debt levels are becoming increasingly unsustainable and will eventually trigger a major economic contraction. He's back on this episode to offer his opinion about how close we might be to that devastating moment now and why the risk is especially high in a time of pandemic, record inflation, rising interest rates, and all-round economic uncertainty. We'll also discuss how we got into this mess in the first place. Here's my conversation with Jerry Flum. Jerry Flum, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back, Rob. Good to talk to you again. Now, we've talked several times in the past about the issue of corporate debt. The last time we did uh, COVID-19 was just getting underway. The, it was about a month into it. Uh, so I'm wondering now, and also but our previous discussions have been at a time when interest rates were low. So that being the case, how do you view the debt situation right now? In a short word, worse and staggering because one, it's gotten dramatically bigger. And number two, interest rates up to the last month or two have been artificially depressed by government actions, whether in this country or all over the world. And so therefore, we've uh, the normal predator, which stops the incremental picking up of more and more debt. In other words, the predator in the forest that prevents the reindeer from taking over the world are wolves. So in bonds or debt issuance, the predator that stops ordering more and more and more debt is interest rates. So if, in fact, they are artificially depressed, then we should expect debt to skyrocket. And lo and behold, it did. It's at record levels that have never been at an absolute level or as a percentage of GDP or any other way of measuring. It's never been this high. What they say is if, in fact, you subsidize uh, something, you should expect more of it. If you tax it, you should expect less of it. And lo and behold, that truism seems to be still part of the human condition on the earth. Low interest rates made money cheap. So companies loaded up on debt for whatever purpose. Mm -hmm. And now the piper mm -hmm. is being paid because now they're being stuck with uh, with higher rates, and so they're in trouble. Well, there's two things that happen. When companies go out and sell a lot of debt, the transaction results in the following. The amount of debt obviously goes up in the company, so the amount of debt on the balance sheet and the corresponding interest rate to service the debt goes up. Mm -hmm. However, what happens to the cash when it comes into the company? If, in fact, it's spent in a manner which will produce incremental 
revenue and profits and cash flow, then the increasing of debt on some possibility has that the people running the company made wise decisions to be able to repay the debt. However, if the debt, instead of remaining in the company, goes out in the form of dividends or share buybacks, then the cash leaves the company and goes to the shareholders or owners and the creditors of the company and the suppliers, if the company is a supplier, these people get really stuffed. These people are being taken severely, advantages being taken of those people. And so that's the consequence. The consequence is that the corporations, for the most part, used the bulk of this incremental cash that came in. They used it for dividends and stock buybacks, which, by the way, it's okay for the investor class, all things being equal, they're getting money back. But number two is it's really bad for the suppliers to those companies. And I guess the employees of the company are basically going to pick up the strain and stress of having to work for a company which is severely struck with huge amount of debt and interest payments. I'm the chairman of credit risk monitors. So when people ask me, what's my job? What's my responsibility? I say, look, I owe it to shareholders. I owe it to the employees. And I owe it to the subscriber base. So I have three constituencies. And I need to try and treat them like every CEO and chairman. I don't do anything differently. That's our responsibilities. Uh, in this case, what's happened, the shareholder classes and ownership classes have been disproportionately benefited by this policy and have left mm -hmm. the companies a lot more vulnerable. What happens in a lot of cases is it not the case that the executive's compensation is tied to the stock price and dividends yeah. and buybacks lead to a short-term jolt in the stock price, thereby compensating the CEO better. So there you have a motive for doing that, right? I think that that's true. There's no doubt about it. Self-interest has been part of human motivation for, I guess, since we've been on the planet, hopefully, and uh, we are Darwinian, and so that's normal. However, you like to think that the managerial class and the investor class would exert some kind of influence on this, and of course, uh, you have the government putting its finger on the scale by artificially depressing rates, therefore, what happens is it can float more and more debt because the interest cost is below. And number two is there's one other thing. If interest rates in the fixed income market for debt are artificially low, people who need to invest for income are forced away from the debt instrument, which is artificially low interest rate, into the equity markets as an alternative to try and get a better return. That moves the total equity market up dramatically. All of these kinds of influences are just counterproductive for the efficient placement of capital into the environment or the economic environment so we can grow the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. Rob, we're talking about stuff which is uh, larger policy issues that I think get skewered artificially depending upon the economic and political belief of the ruling class. Well, you, you've made several references to the government keeping interest rates artificially low. Absent mm -hmm. the Fed, I guess you're talking about Fed actions or the Fed's decision not to act in recent years to raise interest rates. Is that what you're referring to when you say that? 
I'm referring to that. I'm referring to the Congress's willingness to spend way in excess of the revenues that they take in. I'm speaking to the central banks all over the world, whether they be in Europe or whether they be in Asia. China, by the way, is a classic example of over-indebtedness on a scale that makes even the American or European experience look like small potatoes. Chinese and Japanese have been able to leverage up their economies to a level that are staggering. Now, uh, the Japanese have an artificial construct that allows them uh, to be able to do this. The Chinese are facing two serious, serious headwinds, which will be, I believe, partially explain their very, very short-term aggressiveness all over the world, which is really contra long-term China policy, uh, which Mm -hmm. is we are here for the long term and we will outlast everybody and therefore we are going to pursue policies that don't have short-term expeditious behavior. So what the Chinese are now facing it's such a huge debt problem that it's staggering. Uh, in fact, nobody even knows the size of it because the Chinese have a, a different view on how they report numbers uh, mm-hmm. than most people in the Western world. And, and so it's very hard to, to really understand exactly how much debt they've got out there. Number two problem they have, and it's a catastrophe that's within 30 years of really banging in on a major level, and that is they are going to have a huge decline in the population in China. They may go from 1 billion, 250 million. They could easily go down to 800 and 900 million people. Really? You think Uh, they're going to go under a billion, huh? Wow. Oh, yeah. I think it's, well, by the way, uh, one of the wonderful things about population statistics is we know exactly today how many five-year-olds there are in China. There's no way to produce more of them because they've mm-hmm. been born five years ago. So the mathematical explanations on population, I'm not saying they're 100% accurate when you put them out there, but they are reasonably close. By the way, every society, as it gets wealthier, the popula- the uh, women or the society has less of a need to produce children as a safety valve. Uh, in other words, as you well better off, you, you there's just a natural tendency that women have less children, right. and so that plus the Chinese one child per family policy, the combination is a major league. By the way, it isn't just the Chinese. The Chinese have a major catastrophe going here. And by the way, just to put this a little bit in perspective, so who cares if the population goes down? It's a really big deal where you have societies that are based on transfer payments. In other words, you need to have X amount of workers producing excess money or wealth to support those parts of the community that are aging and therefore leaving the working place. And that transfer payment is really horrible in China. And by the way, horrible in lots of countries around the world. The Chinese are the worst by a long shot, but uh, many European countries will be having declining population. And the United States would also 
if we didn't have such a vibrant immigration policy in our country or attractive enough to other people around the world want to come to America, the lineup to get into China is just not as large as the lineup of people wanting to get into the U.S. Let me bring this back to the United States again, Jerry, because I still want to talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about Fed policy and interest rates in this okay. country. I wonder if you're also referring to the Fed's quantitative easing program, whereby they loaded up on their balance sheet by just buying huge numbers of bonds yeah. to prop things up. Do you think that was also a means of artificially suppressing interest rates in this country? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. What it does is it creates a demand for bonds which are being floated by governments because they don't have enough income coming in, so they have to deficit finance. So who buys the bonds the government is issuing? Our Federal mm-hmm. Reserve has been the major buyer. Basically, this is one of the world's all-time largest Ponzi schemes. This makes Bernie <laughs> Madoff look like a rookie. And so <laughs> most people, yeah, when dealing with Ponzi schemes, and what I mean by a Ponzi scheme, we have one part of the government issuing debt, and we have another part of the government buying it. So the right hand is selling bonds to the left hand, and uh, it's just a huge, huge Ponzi scheme. And unfortunately, it's large and on scale, and most people just don't have the attention span, nor do leaders have the intelligence to explain this correctly to people. You are certainly not one of those who would say that the quantitative easing program was what saved our country from getting into an even worse recession, if not a depression, during the last economic crisis. Well, my view of this is really uh, populated by a view by a guy named Schumpner, who won the Nobel Prize in economics maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And basically, there's something called the business cycle. And the business cycle has been here in capitalism since capitalism has been around. And I suspect it will stay in capitalism as long as we are on the earth. And so we're going to have business contractions. If you over indebt yourself, most of the large scale business contractions on scale are debt driven contraction. In other words, debt is the real major league killer. We have normal business cycle contractions. Stock markets go down 10 or 20%. Everybody goes crazy. Growth slows a little bit in the economy. But that's the normal give and take of the business cycle. About every mm-hmm. 70 to 80 or 90 years, what happens is you get a debt-driven contraction. That means people go out and borrow huge amounts of money And in the process of borrowing huge amounts of money, they buy a lot of stuff, which is a lot of fun. Then all of a sudden, they got to service the debt. Now you're talking about personal debt, are you? Or are you talking about corporate debt as well when you make that statement? No, personal and government. When I say us us as individuals in our society, in other words, when you look at American debt or European debt or everybody's debt, it's government, corporation, and personal. And so Mm -hmm. those are the three factors. When I'm talking about total debt, like total debt in our country right now is probably in the area of 200 to 250% of GDP. Total debt. Uh Government debt. The government's part of the debt is about, I think, 125%. These are round numbers. I'm not looking at a chart, so I can't give you, you know, to the. I don't have points and decimal points to write. I'm giving you estimates. And so successive, and it's successive all over the world. So what does debt really do? What's the deal with debt? The deal with debt is debt allows 
a country or a human being or a corporation to buy something now that they don't have enough savings to buy or they don't have enough income to buy. So what happens is they borrow money and buy this thing. So what you're doing when you increase debt you are taking a future purchase. In other words, I don't have enough money to buy a car. I have to wait two or three more years to save. But if I can borrow money to buy the car now, I take that future purchase three years from now and move it into the present tense. I buy it now. Uh-huh. So it overstates demand in the short term and will dramatically lower demand in the future. Let me put it a different way for you, uh, for me to get what I want to be able to say. Look, uh, this is going to result in, in fact, there is severe overcapacity in most industries all over the world. Now, we're not seeing it right now because there's all kinds of constraints on stuff. But the over-indebtedness has resulted in many, many, many companies and industries putting out there huge amounts of investment because the demand for their products is artificially goofed up by Mm -hmm. incremental debt coming in. So the guys and gals running all these companies, all of them thought they were brilliant, and that's why their companies were growing so quickly, as opposed to the fact that demand in the wholesale position it was higher than normal because the incremental debt was killing. Another way to look at this, and the way I looked at it at Credit Response and uh, the hedge funds, is basically, look, incremental debt compared to incremental gross national product. In other words, how much incremental debt over a 10-year period, does it take to produce an incremental gross national product dollar? Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is that we now require, I forget the exact numbers now, it takes somewhat close to, I don't know, a buck 50 in incremental debt to produce a buck of incremental GDP. That's unsustainable. Now, I, I'm not telling you it's unsustainable because I went to graduate school. I, I know this is unsustainable because my mother and father taught me this as a kid. Because you just keep borrowing money. Sure, but as you also point out, Jerry, you just you also mentioned that not all debt is bad. If that debt leads to an investment uh, in a way oh. that's going to yield more returns, Absolutely. then but so certain amount of it's so- Okay, you're absolutely right. I'm saying I did say that to you. So now, how do we measure it? We measure by if incremental debt from year one to year 10, incremental debt is $10 mm-hmm. of incremental debt coming in. And the GDP incremental over that 10-year period is $5. What that's telling you is on a wholesale methodology, the amount of debt that we're putting into the economy is not growing, is not growing uh, the economy uh, dollar for dollar. Yeah. So what I'm saying to you is, yeah, as a generalization, debt uh, has to be the incremental part. Debt can be good or bad, but clearly we're not doing a good job of it because it mm-hmm. takes more than a dollar's worth of debt to produce a dollar's worth of incremental GDP. Wow, that's unsustainable. I mean, you don't have to get past the average guy listening, I hope, to this interview. You just got to have a high school yeah, you and a, and a select other number of economic Cassandras have been sounding this alarm for years now. Are yes. we? Yeah. 
are we close now to some kind, I don't know what term you want to use, a financial apocalypse, the Great Reset, whatever. Are we on the verge of that now? Are you really worried that because of all that's happening yeah. now, these, this is all going to come crashing down very soon? Okay, look, part of the problem of the scale of where we are, this is not an overnight phenomenon. In other mm. words, if I said to you before, if in fact we were going to go down the 20% stock markets and we're going to, you know, GDP is going to go from 3% down to 1%, you know what? You live with it. That's part of business cycles, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. When you get to the scale that we are today, that takes years and years of bad policy and bad management to get to. And so the question is, at what point is it so bad that no matter what the leaders, uh, the government and the uh, financial communities, whatever, they're just not going to work. I can't tell you that, Matt. Look, if you get up to the third story of the building and you jump out and you land on your head, you will die. So what you're in the fifth floor of a building and you jump out, you're probably going to die. Now, what happens? You're lucky on the way down. You hit a branch on a tree and so you don't fall on your head. Does that mean you should jump out of the fifth story? Will All I can tell you is the excesses are beyond anything historically that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I look at it a very different, not a very different, I, I also look at things a, a little differently because, look, before I took over Credit Risk Monitor, I ran a hedge fund. And so I look at what's the criteria that one uses to make investments? What it is is basically return on investment. If I have $100 and I put it into investment, I want it to return, pick a number, 5% or 6%. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I need a return on my money. If, in fact, I can't get that return, because instead of I have a dividend of a dollar and I buy a stock for 10, I'm getting a 10% yield. If I got to buy that same stock at 1,000, I'm now getting one tenth of 1%. So the, the valuations went so sky high while all the debt was going on. So the combination is lethal. You and I are on this phone together. Because we both don't say, look, there's a really strong possibility or probability that we're going to reach the end of the line and we're going to have to contract on scale. Now, if we contract on scale, here's the major difference today that has never been present before. As I've said to you before, the major constrictor on incremental debt is interest rates. In other words, if I got to borrow a million dollars and I got to pay 35% interest, I'm going to have a hard time producing yeah. enough income to justify that much debt. So interest is the guy that stops this going wild. And that was not present artificially. So the amount of debt is catastrophic. Now, let's take the second part of it. I said to you that many, many corporations and governments have gone out and borrowed like crazy. Let's take the other side of this coin. And I don't see very many people writing about this or talking about it. But I want you to think about this part of the equation because it's never happened before. Debt is owned. The government sold the bond. The Federal Reserve buys the bond. The Federal Reserve prints money. But bonds are owned all over the place. The bond market's huge. It's bigger than the shareholder market. 
It's bigger mm-hmm. than the equity markets. Now, now, if all these people own trillions of dollars worth of debt, and it's at 2 and 3 or 4% interest, and now inflation is going up, then the existing bond market automatically has to come down. Mathematically, if I'm getting a dollars of interest and I have a $100 bond, but I need to get 10% interest because that's what's being paid in the marketplace, that bond has to come down to 10 from 100 mathematically. So you're going to see this huge contraction of wealth. If the bond markets represent, the debt markets represent three times GDP and they come down 30%, three times 30% is 90% of the wealth of the GDP evaporates. So, Jerry, as before, you've sounded the alarm loud and clear. It would be nice if people were listening, but we'll just have to see see what happens. And I look forward to speaking with you again to continue this ongoing conversation uh, about what's going on in the economy and interest rates. You are one of my favorite experts on that topic. So, Jerry Flum of Credit Risk Monitor, thank you so much for being with me today. You're welcome. Bye-bye, guys. That was my conversation with Jerry Flum of Credit Risk Monitor, talking about the looming debt crisis. We're online at www.splychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.